This is the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your hosts, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters, break down news, discuss trends, and interview industry influencers. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is on now. This is a bonus episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gugat. Hey, Poobah, on our last episode, you neglected to mention what Melissa gave you for your birthday. I did. Uh, my daughter knows her uh, father pretty well. And uh, later in the day on uh, my birthday, there was a package. Uh, and inside were four Jim's cheesesteaks that had been packed in dry ice and uh, ready for and, and shipped to me. And uh, I shared them with a number of my friends. And uh, this is not the first time Melissa has surprised me with a food-oriented birthday present. A few years ago, she sent me down the, down the home cannoli kit from Termini Brothers, which is a famous bakery in Philadelphia. So obviously, she's the most amazing daughter. But, but here's the $64,000 question. How did the whiz hold up? Oh, I, I don't go with, I'm more of a provolone or American cheese even kind of guy, but it's interesting that you did know about the whole whiz situation because two of my fellow Philadelphians that live here in my neighborhood both said to me, how do you not go with the whiz? So, uh, you know, no, what can I'm, I tell I'm, you? I'm, I'm no John Kerry. I'm not going to order Swiss cheese the next time I'm in Philly. Well, hey, JP is not here today because he's actually at the SFIA's um, Business and Risk Management Summit. So he will he will certainly be missed. But it is a bonus episode because we are going to do things a little bit differently. And so on this episode, we're actually being joined by some previous guests, uh, Melissa Schwartz, Neil's lovely daughter, and uh, Ann Rodriguez, affectionately known to the podcast as A-Rod. And we also have a new guest on the podcast, uh, which is someone who is not unfamiliar with the podcast, which is uh, my better half and uh, the mother of our child, Kareth Lemon. Um, and they're going to cover uh, a number of topics, but uh, uh, that will include, you know, uh, with the recent basketball tournament, the Notre Dame uh, coach uh, Muffet McGraw's sobering reminder on on how far we still have to go with gender equality. Um, Augusta National is uh, truly now competitive as they've had a women's tournament and uh, Nike is betting on women for future uh, sales growth. But before we get going, I, I really want to establish, Neil, the why of why we're doing this. And um, a stat that stood out to me was from the World Economic Forum, which at the current pace uh, we're going, it's going to take over 200 years to actually close the gender gap. And, uh, you know, if you think about what economists have been talking about and the fact that we're in a contained depression right now and there is this potential, um, you know, for a depression in our lifetime that will be bigger than any others that we've had, that actually closing the gender gap could mean $28 trillion in economic activity to the global economy. So I think it, you know, no matter how you feel about this subject, there there are, are reasons you know, that this needs to change. And I think that sort of, you know, establishes the urgency as to why we're having that conversation. But as we welcome our guests, the burden shouldn't just be on them. So our intent with this conversation, uh, you know, is to really have a meaningful conversation that, uh, you know, helps the collective we, you know, look at new ways to be able to, uh, you know, to tackle inequality in, in the workplace. So without further ado, welcome Anne, Melissa, and Kareth. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike and Pooba. 
Well, Neil, why don't you kick us off? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, we're really excited again to have everybody on. And I think it might not be a bad idea, um, you know, if we start off with uh, getting a little bit of everyone's professional background and just a little bit about them. So, uh, Anne, why don't we go in uh, alphabetical order here and you go first. Okay, sounds great. Um, It's really fun to be back and great to hear you guys again. very quickly, my background is primarily in professional sports. Um, I started in women's pro soccer, uh, and then I moved over to MLS, and I worked for the San Jose Earthquakes on behalf of the ownership group of the Oakland Athletics. Um, I went to Under Armour and spent about five and a half years in retail, um, where I, my last role there was the global head of football, soccer. Um, so I had a very interesting experience there doing um, doing a lot of things in a lot of countries that hadn't seen women do them before. So really unique experience there. Um, then I went to Atlanta, worked for Mr. Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United, and Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And I launched Atlanta United and Major League Soccer. Uh, and then most recently, I was Chief Operating Officer of the WNBA. Um, so ran the um, longest-running women's pro league in the world. Uh, also really unique and, and interesting experience. And, um, you know, these days I'm, I'm doing some consulting. I'm really enjoying working with uh, LA 28 and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic properties for my mentor, Kathy Carter. Kareth, how about giving us a little bit of your background? For sure. Well, I'm very thrilled to be on the pod. I've heard so much about it and obviously listened as a active fan, but thrilled to be here in person today. Um, I'm a commercial director and a filmmaker. My experience has been predominantly in the entertainment industry, Um, but I was lucky to start my career at an advertising agency with a female CEO. So um, I've, you know, been born into a feminist household and have stood on my feminist soapbox for a very long time. And so this conversation um, is just very near and dear to my heart. I've worked with brands like State Farm, Acura, Virgin Hotels, and Ancestry.com, always telling uh, female stories and trying to elevate those dialogues. And uh, I think that there's so much more that can be simply and easily done in addition to the the big policy changes that probably need to change. And I can't wait to have this conversation today. Sitting next to me is my daughter, Melissa. Uh, hello, everybody. And uh, thank you again, Mike and Puba, uh, for having us here and talking about such an important topic that is near and dear to, thankfully, all of us, not just the ladies here. So... For those of you who don't know me, I, in addition to being the Puba's daughter, I also work as a vice president of financial planning and analysis for a very large publicly traded architecture, engineering, and construction firm. Uh, I always wanted to be in the construction and real estate industry, but never thought I would end up moving to the dark side of the, or I like to call them the dark arts of finance. Um, but so, so here I am, and I would say right now what I'm currently working on is actually breaking what I hope to be the first of many glass ceilings, not only for myself, but other women uh, in our industry, both the construction industry and also women in finance as well. So what I mean by that is um, my former boss recently retired, and they are restructuring how the finance organization within our uh, $6 billion gross revenue construction business uh, is going to look. And so they're looking to tap me to be hopefully one of the finance leads for the business uh, and actually be a P&L holder is hopefully what is, you know, the next step to becoming 
uh, CFO one day and then, you know, even beyond that. So just, just, you know, kicking with my feet up right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what we're going to do and Mike and I, you know, um, if you've listened to previous podcasts before, you know, usually we'd like to promote kind of as much of an open exchange, but we always like to start off with a number of questions. Um, and and in this case, we're going to do it a little bit more like a panel discussion, and then hopefully it's going to create also some organic um, back and forth as uh, as our podcast starts today. So, uh, you know, let me start off by, uh, Anne, let me ask you, you know, can you describe some experiences, you know, in your professional life where being a woman has presented some challenges and then may- maybe in the opposite sense of where it may have worked to your advantage? Yeah, sure. And I've experienced both, um, you know, so maybe it balances out in the wash. I don't think so, though. I think I've probably faced more challenges being a woman, um, particularly when I moved into men's professional sports. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, working in a global sport like soccer and, um, you know, going to countries like the UK or Chile or Mexico um, and so dealing with with um, cultures who are far less accustomed to seeing women in leadership roles than we are here in the U.S. Um, they exist. There's many of those countries, and um, the bias is much stronger. Um, that's probably where I saw the most surprising, in some ways, um, surprising and, and intense challenges. And I would, I don't want to really get into too many specifics, just because we have so many great things to talk about. Um, but what I would say is, and we talked about this um, the last time I was on the podcast and with Melissa. I think we both talked about this a little bit. You know, the way I was able to overcome those challenges um, really twofold. One, um, I had a lot of great male allies in those situations, and I worked collaboratively with a, with another minority. Um, I worked with an African-American gentleman um, at Under Armour who was the head of product, and we, we kind of went in these situations together in countries where they actually weren't accustomed to seeing um, anybody with dark skin, right? And so he was, he was facing his own uphill battle in terms of getting accepted, and he and I really stuck close together, came up with strategies, worked with our manager to make sure we had the right people in the right meetings. And I think, you know, having an ally and, and, and um, you know, a fellow minority ally, one of the things I don't want to get lost in the conversation about sort of diversity and inclusion is that there are entire categories of men who are underrepresented and unsupported in our industry. And, um, you know, we stuck together to really overcome some of those. And, and just coming back to what we had talked about in the past was, you know, just being good, like making sure we do a great job and getting to the point where the client wanted you on the business. Like, I don't want anybody but that person. Right. Um, and when you do a great job, you know, people notice and it becomes genderless and all they want is the outcome, especially when you're working on, on, um, a revenue portion of the business, like, you know, like apparel, um, which I was working on at the time. Um, I think as a superpower, I mean, look, obviously working in a women's league, um, and being able to relate to the athletes, you know, not just, not just being a woman, but being a college graduate and having been a college athlete was a tremendous asset uh, in establishing the relationships within the WNBA and USA basketball. And I think in that sense, it truly was a superpower, particularly because I reported to Lisa Borders, who is the president of the WNBA and uh, a real daughter of the civil rights movement in Atlanta and, and um, someone who, as an African-American woman, had integrated her high school um, and had been 
you know, the first black female student um, at a at a prep school in Georgia, um, and had a lot of experience being other and being challenged and and feeling less than, and and has lived a life of, of overcoming that and helping other people do so. Um, so I think you know it's a superpower even just to be around her, uh, but also to have the ability to relate to the athletes. Hey Melissa, let's change the order. How about you? Um, can you describe a situation where you know you've run run into a, a situation where being you know being a woman has presented a challenge, and in other cases where it's you know allowed you to overcome that challenge? So I tried to rack my brain to think about an instance where being a woman I felt has been a hindrance, but I don't know if it's by luck or just you know the timing or perhaps both. And this is kind of surprising, I would say, given the industry I'm in. But I can't really think of a time where I felt you know discriminated against or not given opportunities because I'm a woman, and I feel very fortunate for that. And I think one of the things, Anne, that you touched on, I I too have had many. Uh, senior male influences who have really been, you know, I've called them my champions, mentors, advocates, supporters, all of the above. Um, And one of the things I think that is not necessarily a hindrance, but, you know, I went, I've been at a few women in construction conferences as of late. And one of the things that strikes me is you're, you know, I went to one conference in New York and we had women from the trades all the way up through, you know, women who were considered to be very senior in their companies, but you didn't see, and you actually had a lot of very senior males uh, who run construction companies, but you didn't have any senior women from the C-suite to look up and say, oh, I identify with that person. And that still showed to me where there is a gap. Um, And I think, you know, I'm, fortunate enough to be kind of coming up at the right time, I think, where, you know, C-suites are and, you know, succession plans are really looking for diversity and females. And so I think that I'm certainly, like I say, luck and, and good timing right now, because I think if anything, I know for a fact that, you know, the powers that be above me are looking for, you know, young people to step up, but certainly, certainly women. So, um, that's been my experience. Have you ever felt in a situation being, um, I know you're the youngest on the panel, um, and, and in a male dominated business where you've been talked down to in any time? Uh, yeah, you know, there's a fair degree of, as we call it, mansplaining. Um, I mean, even the guys who I would say have been my champions, they'll do that sometimes. And it totally drives me nuts because, you know, as if I don't understand what we're saying or you know, I'll say something and then they'll repeat it as if what I said didn't just happen. And there's, those are those unconscious biases or those, um, uh, type examples of that. Sure. But, uh, you kind of just take it in stride. I think one of the things you have to do is focus on the mission and play the longer game and not get hung up on every little slight or what have you. How about you, Kareth? Has there been a situation where, you know, being a woman has presented some challenges that you maybe didn't anticipate and, and maybe in other cases where it's really worked in your favor. Um, I too had to think a bit hard about this because like uh, my female cohorts on this panel here, um, I also have always um, had great male counterparts that have been very supportive of me along the way. Uh, one thing I realized early on is that, as Melissa just said, there just weren't that many females doing what I wanted to do. So like just going as far back to just growing up, you know, there weren't that many r- women surrounding me um, 
that had really professional careers in the corporate world. And so when I went to work, I sought out those kinds of mentorship. So as I mentioned briefly, my very first boss was a head of a predominant advertising agency in uh, San Francisco. And, you know, I remember thinking right away, like if there was any job in this agency that I'd want, it would be hers. And I couldn't imagine that, you know, other people weren't thinking the same thing. So, you know, for me, I just always look to try to find those people in the world that I could reach up to and have them help lift me up. And I've been very fortunate, both men and women that um, you know, they've come through for me. It wasn't really until I made the shift after being in the entertainment industry for 15 years on the marketing side. I worked in integrated marketing and marketing at um, Viacom, which again was a very gender balanced company. We had a female CEO for quite some time. Judy McGrath was a great role model. Um, but when I decided to go out on my own and start producing and then subsequently directing, I think that's where I ran into most of the gender inequality just because the entertainment industry is so male dominated and especially on the directing end, um, both in Hollywood and in advertising. I mean, the, the numbers are just dismal. So it, that's where you really are dealing with people that are kind of speaking down to you and mansplaining when in fact, um, you know, being a female in those roles, you, you do have a superpower because women are inherent, you know, nurturers and leaders and gatherers. And that's what you have to do to get projects done. Um, especially creative projects, you have to build those teams and and lead them to the ultimate grand vision. Um, and so you just learn along the way, you know, who is who is a friend and who is a foe. And because you have hiring power as a director, you can then build your team. So whenever I do projects, I'm very proud to have gender parity on all my sets. Um, I know what men are going to help support my vision and the kinds of storytelling that I want to do. And I keep hiring them and I ask them to bring along you know, they're male and female friends that have, uh, you know, similar visions. Great. You mentioned, you know, those that, you know, reach down, you know, to you. And, and I think that in some cases, when you haven't had that female executive there to reach down, um, you also look to others that you can reach up to regardless of gender. And we have a lot of young people that are listening to this podcast who are wanting to make their way in the industry. Uh, and what is some of the advice you have? You know, if somebody isn't reaching down, how can you go about uh, reaching up? Um, yeah, and it's an important point because, you know, I really liked everything that Kareth and Melissa said, and, you know, they really touched on how many people in their lives have sort of co collaborated to to elevate them and help them reach their goals, which I think is really cool. Um, and I would say, I guess one thing I, I want to say on this topic is that, um, and it sounds like Melissa and Kareth have done this too, have been really intentional about making sure I'm in environments that are supportive and opting out or not applying to or not pursuing places that I know or not. Um, and so being choosy about where you go, you know, it is a choice. There's lots of jobs out there. And I think for young people out there, you need to seek out environments where you know you're going to be supported and, and elevated. And, you know, it's something you can explore in the interview process. It's something you can explore by talking to other folks who work there to give you the real deal, you know, as you're, as you're looking at a company. But, but making sure that the environment is one of support and that, um, you know, when you look and you see, gosh, there's no women above a certain level, I wonder why, um, you know, that's, that's information. 
and and you got to dig into that. So um, doing your homework and, and choosing well would be my advice. In terms of getting people to reach down, I mean, gosh, I've been so lucky with women who've reached out. Kathy Carter, who used to be the president of Major League Soccer's um, revenue group called Soccer United Marketing, um, and then uh, Lisa Chang, who is our head of, of HR at AMB Group and is now the chief people officer at Coca-Cola, um, and Lisa Borders, who is our president at the W. You know, they've been great at reaching down and helping me out. And, you know, I think I think sometimes we don't have those relationships because we're either afraid to ask or we assume someone's too busy. And you got to overcome both of those things and be proactive in reaching out and, and really structuring a relationship so that you get time. You can ask questions and be candid. Um, and I've achieved that with those three people. And, and gosh, I'm just so blessed and lucky to have women like that in my life and in this industry who've, who've done everything they could to help me. Um, but it's a two-way street in terms of, of putting your hand up and, and building that bridge and, and doing all the scheduling gymnastics you have to do to get on someone's calendar when they're that busy. But, you know, it's work on both sides. Great. Hey, Melissa, you know, you talked about your industry and, and uh, you know, clearly uh, uh, there, there aren't as many women as, as you maybe would hope are, are there. Can you describe some of the examples of where, you know, you've been able to, uh, you know, find a, a mentor that is, has really been, you know, meaningful in their, you know, at your side? Sure. So like I said, I mean, I would, all of the folks above me for the most part are men, but they've all been men that not only I would say have embraced the fact that I'm a woman, I would say more so have embraced the fact that I'm young. So I kind of had both those things to overcome. But to Anne's point, I was fortunate enough to be just happened to be in an environment that where if you were smart and you were a hard worker and you added value, there was a place for you in the company and a place for you to have your voice grow and your power grow. Um, and I would certainly echo the, I have, we have an executive. He always tends to say with regards to pursuing work, uh, don't go where you're not wanted. So there's plenty of other avenues. I think these days where you don't have to fight such an uphill battle, um, the other thing I would add is, you know, unfortunately, like I said, I, I haven't really had any female mentors that I could say have reached down to me. So it's been, it's been fortunate. Like you've said many times, Mike, the, the majority have been willing to reach down to me. Uh, I certainly have a group of women that I work with uh, that are very, we're all very supportive of each other. Although, you know, there have been a few times where there's been some women on woman hate crimes, unfortunately, amongst even, you know, colleagues of mine that I would consider close friends. And some of that is just, you know, having grown up, as I say, in their careers in different environments where they had to fight a little bit harder than I've had to lately. Um, so that's been definitely some, you know, part of my experience, but I'll share with you really quickly. So I mentioned earlier, I've been a bit, I've been on a conference circuit as of late. So I was at one conference that I actually spoke at and I didn't see any senior women uh, from the C-suite of any major, you know, or company on the panel. And then I went to a women in construction conference in Newport beach and the opening remarks were by uh, a female CFO of a publicly traded and very highly regarded construction company out west and she just so happened to you know walk off the podium after she was done and happened to be sitting right next to me and I felt as if I had uh, found a unicorn basically and that was the other thing I think that Ann touched on you have to, you know so I you know we became friends we talked a lot throughout the conference I emailed her 
um, to keep in touch. And uh, a lot of other people will say, just ask people for coffee and try to cultivate relationships. Doesn't matter who they're with. And um, that's something I think that, you know, women especially need to do a good job with is sort of being their own advocate about finding people. And most people are willing to help. That's a great, great point, Melissa. And I think, uh, you know, something that Kareth and I, as I got to know her about her career and, and being able to, you know, reach out to people and actually have that, you know, uh, informational or exploratory conversation. Kareth, would you share some of those experiences, but also some of the mentors in your career that actually have become friends and mentors of, of both of us? Absolutely. I echo everything that's been said so far. I think that utilizing those relationships and, um, you know, just raising your hand and letting people know that you're ready to take that next step and that you're, you know, not looking for a handout, but looking for some advice and guidance and friendship uh, is very important. And, uh, you know, often, unfortunately, just culturally, women don't ask. We don't take that time, whether it's to ask for the raise or ask for the 15 minutes. Like It's the same fear of the no. And I think we all just have to remind ourselves that if you don't ask, as Mike likes to say, people can't say yes. Um, so I remind myself of that even now today all the time. But I was really lucky um, growing up in my career. I just had some amazing women along the way. I've already mentioned the CEO, Stacey Painter of um, Publicist Dialogue in San Francisco, who remains a great friend of, of mine and now Mike's, um, as well as a, a huge mentor of mine from CBS Radio Days, Peggy Panache, who then um, was also you know, miraculously at the Oprah Winfrey Network when I was there too. That was an absolute coincidence, but she continued, you know, we had stayed friends over the years and the fact that I came into that company on my own and then had her there to be in my corner was just instrumental in, in every little bit of success that I was able to have um, at the network when I was the VP of digital video there. Um, and then as I took the leap to form my own production company and start commercial directing, you know, she's been a huge advocate of mine and recommending me to her agency friends and things for jobs. Um, so the more you can cultivate those relationships and keep them over time, you know, just the more valuable that they'll be. Um, I actually just wrapped up a really amazing gender equality commercial. And it was a huge reminder to me that uh, it's not just the big steps. I think that when you're in an industry that has a lack of women at the top, or it's easy to think that, yes, women have a seat at the table, but there's only one seat at the table, which kind of, to Melissa's point, starts some of those um you know, negative interactions with other women. But I think we have to imagine that the table can only get bigger. Like, let's just shove our chairs aside and pull up more chairs. Like, who cares? <laughs> um, so I think if you kind of keep that perspective along the way, then you can also, while you're reaching up to have somebody help you, you can reach down and pull somebody up behind you um, and just, you know, whether it's share your seat or add a chair, uh, just keep that in mind as you're moving up the ranks, um, you know, it should be a kind of a forward and backward look. And the other thing that this project really brought to my attention is it's a lot of the little things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, getting talked over at work and, um, you know, not and having somebody mansplain your idea that you just did. But the more that you see that happen to other women that, you know, if you're aware of those things and they make you uncomfortable, then speak up for other women when it happens and be in, in their corner. Um, because a lot of times these are just cultural things that have come into play and they're now considered the norm. 
And unless somebody speaks up, then that's sort of not going to stop. And I could go into a whole entire separate tangent about raising our children to, you know, to, to not take on these habits, but we won't go there today. We'll stick with the work conversation. So stick up for your other ladies and uh, help to educate in a respectful manner our, our men counterparts. Hey, I'd like to th- um, well, thank everybody for listening today to the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. We're doing a, a special edition, um, as Mike alluded to uh, at the top of the show. Um, we're talking today um, with three professional women um, about um, equality or gender equality and inequality in the workplace. And uh, and we're really uh, trying to dive into some of the causes, effects, and really, you know, I'm already kind of, my eyes are already open to a number of things that I can say that, you know, I've seen in my day where, you know, had I had a chance to do it differently, I probably would now. But, you know, I have to say one expression is starting to really starting to annoy me and probably not annoy me for the reasons that some might think might be the word mansplaining. You know, the fact that we even have to have an expression like that, you know, is enough to irritate you. But let me, you know, let me roll this over to uh, Anne for a second. And Anne, what do you think it's going to take to close the gender gap? I mean, is it going to be, you know, executives like myself and Mike have known to do something? I mean, what's it going to take in order to, to change this? You know, Puba, when I think about how to make changes, you know, as we go forward, it's a long process that uh, is going to require holistic changes and uh, a lot of persistence. Um, and, you know, I think it's a mix of activities like unconscious bias training. Um, I think in the past, the solution has been to train the women and not the men. Um, and I think that, you know, we'll always be working together and, and it's better to really think about how biases, um, you know, how they, how they're formed, how they take shape and how they affect behavior. Um, I certainly think succession planning and and diversification at the board level are important, um, to make sure that women continue to progress through leadership ranks. Um, in addition to, to talented and capable, um, male champions. Um, I think that that's critical. And I think end of the day, women have got to lead into lean into the leadership opportunities um, and, and be visible. And I see so many women say no to speaking at conferences, say no to media interviews, um, step out of the photo op at an event and, and make themselves invisible. And, you know, when we do that, we hurt everyone behind us. And even if we don't like doing those things, we got to find a way uh, because when we're visible and present, you know, it says a lot and it says a lot, not just to women, uh, but all the young men who are, who are coming up behind us. You know, I want them to grow up in their careers and, and understand that, it, that you can have a female mentor, a female role model and a capable female leader uh, as well. So, so being present and visible is on us. Hey, hey Rod, I, I remember, you know, way back when uh, Doug Williams, the former quarterback, and he won the Super Bowl. And of course it was, they were making a big deal about him being the first black quarterback, mm-hmm. you know, to win the Super Bowl. You know, when are we going to get away from this situation where, you know, this is a woman CEO and not just a CEO? I mean, Jennifer Est- Estabrook, I think I said her name right, was just made the CEO of uh, Fila here in the United States. And again, it was female CEO. Yeah, I don't know why why we got to keep doing that. And it's funny. I when we were 
when I was reflecting on this conversation, I was thinking about Doug Williams too, um, you know, and, and what a big deal it was, um, you know, back in the early nineties, I, I think we should remember that was just 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, I would hope that, you know, look, the media shapes a lot of this perception and, and Karis can probably speak better to this than I can, but, but the more we get away from that, we focus on, on people's backgrounds and, and competencies and capabilities when we talk about them being a fit for the job um, and, and less about constantly highlighting gender, you know, the one this, the one that, um, you know, I think that's going to help us make progress, but, but boy, I think it's going to be a long time. Kareth, what do you think? I mean, what do you think we can do short-term, long-term? Well, I think we'll get to the point where we stopped referring to women CEOs as female CEOs when we get beyond 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. So first of all, I think once we get just the numbers up, then we can drop that descriptor at the right. top. I, I um, but, you know, in the... Um, I spoke to some, you know, small day-to-day things earlier, but, you know, I think that there, per industry, there's nothing wrong with initiatives that promote women. Um, You know, in my industry, both on the entertainment and the commercial side, there are specific initiatives that are just elevating the visibility of women um, directors, both as, you know, film directors and commercial directors. On the commercial side, there is an initiative that was started by a pretty prolific female director called Free the Bid. And all that does, it doesn't say that you have to hire a woman. It says that in a triple bid process, which all agencies do, that one bid will have a female director attached. And that way, it just elevates the fact that there are female directors available and she or he may be the right fit for the project and the agency can still consider everybody on the same creative playing field, but it ensures that a woman is visible and, um, you know, in order to be selected for the project. And that already is just elevating this idea that women can actually direct and showcasing their work in a, you know, in a process that they before would have never gotten seen. Um, So I think we need to find those ways that women can be seen easier along the way and not be afraid of, you know, initiatives that do that. I think a lot of people talk a lot about, we can't get to this point where it is like an affirmative action item. I'm not suggesting that at all. I think everybody still needs to be considered on their merit, but women have to be able to get to that point where their merit can be considered. Do you think, you know, and I'm going to pass this to Melissa to respond to the same question, but has Title IX been a good thing or a bad thing, you know, in terms of helping women achieve more equality in the workplace? And I'll start really real quick with you. Do you think it's been a good thing or a bad thing? Well, there's a lot of research out there that shows that the 5% 5% of women leaders that Kareth talked about, you know, that they have a background in athletics um, and a lot of the traits that you develop competing in terms of teamwork and discipline, preparation, et cetera, you know, really honed in athletics and, and even more so at the collegiate level, you know, so there's an argument that potentially opportunities created by title nine, um, you know, benefit women. But when you step back, I just, I guess I'm, I'm not a big, fan of anything that makes opportunity a zero-sum game. You know, there's a, many men's track programs and swimming programs and wrestling programs that went away because of Title IX. You know, it was like, we've got this fixed pie, and now these men lose these opportunities. And I think they're just as, 
you know, every bit as deserving um, as the women are. And so I think, and I'm only interpreting Title IX as it relates to sports. It, it affects other areas of, of federally funded institutions. But, you know, I, I think it's a net positive for women. But whenever we put men in a position to perceive a diversity initiative as a zero-sum game or as something that's taking something away, um, you know, it's hard to champion that and see it getting traction. How about for you, Melissa? What do you think that, you know, can be done or men can do to, or anybody can do to, to, you know, to get this equality situation on a better footing? I think it, you know, I, I think it was either Kareth or Ann or both who said, you know, there's a lot, there's a mix of things. It's not one thing and it's all sides. Um, I think, you know, there's some formal things we could do. So for example, in my company, um, there is the finance cabinet. So it's all the direct reports from the C for, who report to the CFO of the parent company. And right now there's one woman on, you know, the fine in the finance cabinet, or we have, it's uh, a group, and it's the top hundred people across the organization. They they meet a few times a year. And I think maybe companies establishing certain diversity goals for things like that. So for example, if you if you cut it off at the top one hundred and you don't achieve the diversity that you want in that group, that you you as Kareth said, you make the table bigger. You you open things up more to achieve that diversity. Because um, there's a lot of data that shows that objectively more diverse groups make better decisions and you know help companies perform better. Um, so I think that's one area uh, is just to kind of be nimble about the ways in which that you decide to create groups or in being more inclusive in general and uh, for and setting up formal procedures for doing that, whether it's hiring boards. So that's one thing we've been really pushing for a bunch of the, the women uh, who are sort of at the VP level, pushing the executives who run our business to, you know, as we hire executives and often we found, you know, very poor track record uh, in hiring these individuals. And we've, you know, constantly said that perhaps our track record of success could improve if we had more, more women on the hiring committee to interview these individuals uh, would be a good start. Also just looking for more women, you know, it's always whenever we do a search for top executives, it's always tends to be men. So I think not something so drastic perhaps is like the Rooney rule, but where you, you have to also, you know, where you look for external and internal candidates that you also have to maybe look for minorities or look for women or things like that, that we can do. The other thing I would say that you know, I, I, I grew up in a feminist household between, you know, my the Puba and also my grandfather without knowing it. And I didn't consider myself a feminist until uh, it kind of served my purpose and trying to climb the corporate ladder. But one of the things I've done recently is try to lend more of a voice or cast more of a light on a lot of the younger women, but, you know, below me or starting out in their career. Um, and, you know, using the influence that I have in in our little pocket of the company to, uh, create more exposure for these women because I think, especially in our industry, you know, we're hurting for for talent and people, and they're you know the only way to broaden that talent base is to look elsewhere. And I think you know it was pointed out that women are a huge untapped resource within our industry. Um, so things like that, I think, go a long way. Hey, Anne, while we have you for a couple more minutes, could you quickly touch on uh, uh, what Notre Dame's uh, basketball coach, uh, Muffet McGraw, uh, called attention to at this year's tournament? Oh, sure. So 
Notre Dame has a head coach. Her name's Muffet McGraw. Um, I think they have two national championships. And then this year they just came up short. Um, and I've never met her, but I've worked with a number of athletes she's coached. And, and they're just fantastic in the way they comport themselves and, you know, how they articulate their views. And, and she, she did a really great job in an interview um, at the Women's Final Four when she was asked about how it felt to, you know, after the passing of Pat Summit from Tennessee, the legendary women's basketball coach from Tennessee, you know, how it felt for her to have that mantle of sort of that leader, uh, you know, leading female voice uh, among, you know, women's basketball coaches. And um, she did a really good job of articulating her views. Um, she had a lot of facts and figures. She was really organized. And I thought she did a really great job. You have to watch the video of really making her point about which she's very passionate, but in a very rational way. Um, I think it was a good lesson for all of us in terms of how to do that. But end of the day, she looked at the women or the men's Division One basketball, and she said, "Wow, ninety nine percent of the coaches in men's basketball are men." Um, and when I look at women's basketball, more and more jobs are going to to men's coaches, um, and there's a lot of men in assistant coaching roles, which prepare them for those head coach roles and, and other key functions on the staff. And uh, she expressed frustration with that because it's leading to you know what's called in diversity and inclusion a pipeline problem, and she. You know, I'm I'm not a I'm not an always slash never person myself. But you know, she said that she was done hiring male staff members and was going to focus on developing female talent. Um, and she hit the nail on the head. You know, in the sense that it, it truly is a pipeline problem. And in another time, we can talk about sort of the pay disparity in the women's professional basketball game. But um, the, that pay disparity is hurting women as coaches because what happens is a lot of the great collegiate players go overseas to make money and, and, and they lose the opportunity to be in developmental coaching roles. Uh, and so when they retire, you know, eight or nine years later from the W um, or from playing professionally overseas, they don't have the contacts or the training um, to get into coaching, especially at the sort of you know, if anybody here has ever coached, they sure don't pay you a whole lot of money to be an assistant coach. Um, you know, we are the second assistant, third assistant or whatever on these teams. Um, and there's an economic barrier that's disproportionately affecting women and, you know, funneling into this pipeline problem. And, and Coach McGraw did a great job of really highlighting that and, and um you know, explaining that not only do we have a pipeline problem, we have a lot of men competing for jobs in the women's game. And when you look at the athletic directors, you know, the people making the decisions in NCAA Division One, I, I think there's something like 10 women. Um, we'll have to double check the stat, but it's a really, really small percentage. And so people who are making the, the hiring decisions are also men. And so women are getting sort of locked out at every opportunity. And, and she expresses deep conviction and commitment to addressing that, which I appreciate. You, you know, one of the other, uh, I think, issues that have come up also recently in news was the situation at Augusta National prior to the Masters. Of course, we all, you know, we all got very uh, enthralled by watching Tiger win, uh, win at the Masters. Uh, I guess that's now almost two weeks ago. But the week before, what a lot of people were not aware of is that the U.S. Women's Amateur uh, Tournament was actually played at Augusta National uh, before the Masters. And I believe this was the first women's tournament of any type um, that was uh, played at Augusta. So, you know, I'm going to kind of, um, you know, 
We've talked about golf a number of times, my affinity towards golf. I've been able to create a monster um, on the golf course sitting next to me with Melissa. But Melissa, what, what are your feelings about, you know, Augusta finally allowing women to play, you know, a professional event at that at that venue? So before we get into Augusta, I did want to note that I uh, said to Puba today on the golf course that he is like the ultimate golf consumer. If there is some new gadget or something to buy, this man will buy it. So I'll just say that if, uh, if anyone wants to throw him some some demo sets or anything, but uh, and he, he'll try it. He'll try anything once. Hey, but- hey, Melissa, it's, it's amazing that he and I are still friends because I can't get him free stuff from Mizuno or TaylorMade anymore. But, 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 but go on. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate for both Puba and I, but I'm only just, thank you for making me aware of that now. But uh, I would say, you know, as someone who loves the game of golf, I watch a lot of the, the men's tournaments, the majors, all, you know, the non-majors um, and, uh, you know, aspiring amateur female golfer myself. I was super excited about this tournament. Um, it was the, you know, there was, I was reading a lot of articles about it after the fact because I was just totally uh, enamored and totally fell into the craze of it. Um, and, and you're right, it was the first time that Puba, that women uh, competed at Augusta National. And they were talking about how to judge whether or not this event was a success. And one of the articles I read commented how, you know, the ratings shouldn't necessarily dictate whether this endeavor was worthwhile or not. However, um, the article also did note that Ratings-wise, this was the highest-ranked amateur event, men's or women's, since the 2003 U.S. Amateur uh, Tournament at Oakmont. And, you know, I just, you know, obviously you've got the backdrop of Augusta National, which is gorgeous. But you had these two women, Maria Fossey and Jennifer Cupcho, just going head-to-head like, you know, Tiger Woods and a Rory McIlroy would. And they just totally made Augusta their bitch on that course. Like they were just hammering those balls and I loved it. Uh, and I think it's an interesting play long-term when you think about how do we grow the game of golf and perhaps maybe you've gotten all the men that you're going to get. But I think there's a, a huge amount of, you know, women, particularly young women and sort of also overlapping the aspiration of women to grow uh, in their careers and sort of the interplay between golf and sort of, uh, you know, the social aspect of climbing the corporate ladder that I think is a really unique opportunity. And I was excited to see it happen and I hope to see more of it. That's great. So Kareth, uh, Nike is, is betting on women as a source of sales growth. Yeah, I was uh, sort of have mixed feelings when uh, this headline came across my desk. Uh, They are making a push to look for new pockets of growth and are kind of keying into women, um, which is, you know, in my book, always positive when we open up the door for more women. As Anne mentioned, you know, there's a huge correlation between women that do sports growing up and their overall success uh, in business and life. Um, So that was something that Rosemary St. Clair spoke to about the importance of, of, of young girls staying in sports. And hopefully with this new push, that's what they're hoping to do is to get more young women playing sports and staying in them longer. They kicked this off with a really great campaign that launched um, Oscars weekend, which is now a little bit dated, but um, 
the film was beautiful in itself. It was voiced over by Serena and really highlighted a lot of women's success. It was entitled Dream Crazier. Um, and this is an area that I was actually very pleased. Um, as Anne spoke to on the last time she was on the podcast, you know, oftentimes these companies that are promoting women aren't exactly backing it up in the C-suite. Um, Nike, the latest stat I could see was in 2018, they only had 29% female vice presidents at the company. So that's an area where I think they need to continue to grow if they're going to, you know, make this push towards the consumers um, and profit off all of these women. Let's also uh, let them elevate women within the company. But one thing they did do really well in that commercial campaign that they launched, um, not only in a print campaign where they highlighted female athletes in the Olympics, like the uh, female fencer who was the first fencer to fence in a hijab, um, but they hired a female director uh, for this campaign, which isn't always the case. There are a lot of you know, campaigns that are directed towards women that are still, you know, men are hired to do that. But uh, Kim Gehrig actually is kind of the queen of doing these female empowerment sports spots. And uh, she just directed a beautiful piece. And uh, I hope that, you know, Nike takes a cue from their consumer outreach and elevates those women internally. That's great. Well, hey, I want to thank our guests today, Anne Rodriguez, Melissa Schwartz, and Kareth Lemon, our sound engineer, Tyrone Lippman. This podcast would not be possible if not for our partnership with the Washington and DC office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment. Our mayor, Muriel Bowser, our friends at 202 Creates. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and be sure to rate us. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.